Good morning, church. Good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Reed, and I uh, get to serve as the pastor here of Trinity Fellowship. So if you're new, if you're a guest here, we're glad you're here. And uh, Happy New Year to you all. Happy New Year. This is fun being in a new year. In some ways, it's a day like no other day. It's just, just another day on the calendar, but it does give us this opportunity as we enter into a new year to reflect back and look upon all the ways God has been good and faithful to us, even through hard times. But it also affords us this chance to look ahead and anticipate uh, what God has to do in and through our lives moving forward. And so uh, it is a joy to gather together um, on this day. And so I want to take a minute to pray uh, before we jump into the Lord's word uh, together. And so let's, let's do that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you um, for being the creator of all things. Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth. And Lord, we recognize that while this world that we inhabit, that these bodies that we have, that the decisions that we make are, are broken because of sin. And yet we also recognize, Lord, that you have not allowed us or the world to simply stay in this broken state, but you have made a way for us to be made whole. And so, Lord, as we embark upon this new year together and individually, would you work within us through the power of your spirit to make us more and more like your son? Lord, what I long for in our church, in this community, is that we would be a people who are so in tune with who you are and attentive to your presence that we become, we find it second nature to see your hand at work in our lives, to hear your voice speaking truth to us. And so, Lord, as we gather in this time, what we do in this space, would you use it to shape us, to mold us, to, to prune us, to remove the things in us that are not aligned with your will and your kingdom? And would you instill, instead place within us a desire, a longing to emulate you in our thoughts, words, and deeds. May we love the things that you love. And as we sing, may you break our hearts for what breaks yours. And may we love as you have loved us. And so, Lord, in this time, would you bless the teaching of your word. May you, Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes of our hearts to see and behold wondrous things from it. And may you receive all the praise in this time. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, what we're doing uh, today, this is a, a makeup Sunday, if you will. Uh, so if you uh, were with us uh, last year, we had our first snow day as a church. And so we, we learned that we uh, needed to plow the, the parking lot of Santa Fe Trail. And so we didn't have that lined up. So thank you for your patience on that Sunday. I know there were a couple of people that showed up that morning, very faithful. Uh, and so sorry about that. But uh, what we had planned for that Sunday, we're doing today. And if you might recall... Uh, we were going through the five values of Trinity Fellowship, and we were about to finish up with our last value, but uh, we had to, to punt because of the snow day. And so we are going to kind of finish that up today. And so what I wanted to do is just kind of just give us all kind of a framing of where we are, who we are as a church. Um, we are, our vision as a church, as Trinity Fellowship, is that we long to see our community holistically transformed by the reconciling power of the gospel through the work of the church and for the glory of Christ. This is, this is where we see ourselves going as we follow after God's plan for us as a church. 
That vision forms and shapes our mission, what we do. And our mission as a church is is summed up in this statement. Trinity Fellowship is called to follow Jesus by cultivating disciples who love all peoples and seek the common good of our community. This is what we plan to do. And our values that come from this are basically what describe who we are. If, if they, these are not the, the totality of what it means to follow Jesus, but as we think about who God has called us in this particular time and place, these values serve as kind of the, the guardrails, if you will, of how we d- determine if we are being faithful to the mission that God has called us to. And our values are these, the gospel centrality, holistic discipleship, Multicultural family, mutual hospitality, and the one we look at today is biblical justice. And biblical justice, this is kind of, you can find this on our website if you're interested, but this is kind of like our summary statement of this value. That the gospel moves us to work for justice by addressing matters of injustice which inhibit the flourishing of our neighbors. The work of pursuing justice lies at the heart of our call to love our neighbors as ourselves, which we sang in the beautiful song that Joel and our uh, uh, worship team led us in earlier this morning. And so this is the value we're going to be looking at, okay? So, so I want to speak to our kids for a second. So kids, where are you at? Let me see my kids. Raise your hands. Show of hands, okay? You're here. I want to give you, this is kind of my kid version of what we're going to talk about, okay? So what we're basically going to talk about is this. We're going to talk about how Biblical justice is more like the golden rule than the silver rule, okay? Does anybody know what the golden rule is? The golden rule, it's kind of, it's made famous by Jesus. Does anybody know what the golden rule is? Any, any kids? Okay. Oh, oh, let's hear it in the back. What is, what's the golden rule? Boom, she's got it. She's got it. Well done, Eleanor. Well done. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Jesus made this famous in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. And so and we're, this is a common um, ethic in our culture. But do you know what the silver rule is? The silver rule was not really taught by Jesus. It's really taught more by our culture. The silver rule is, is kind of the weak sauce version of the golden rule. The silver rule is this. Don't treat people the way you don't want to be treated. That sounds like it's the same thing, right? But it's a little bit different. The golden rule is treat people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The silver rule, the weak sauce junior varsity version, is don't do unto others what you wouldn't want them to do unto you. Now, is that still good? Should we avoid doing bad things to people? Yes, very good. Good class, yeah. But, but the golden rule goes so much further. So, so kids, here, here is my summary. Biblical justice is much more like the golden rule than the silver rule. Is it good to avoid doing bad things to people? Yes. But what we see in Scripture is that what God calls us to is to not just avoid doing bad things, but to actively do good things. Does that make sense? Kids, are you with me? Let me see a thumbs up. Thumbs up. Okay, good. I see thumbs. Wonderful. Wonderful. So that's kind of what we're talking about. Now, now, everybody here, let me give a little bit of a disclaimer. This word justice is what I refer to as a suitcase word. It is a word that needs to be unpacked, if you will. Okay, it's a bit of a dad joke, so deal with it. I'm a dad. But, but it's a suitcase word. It's a word that has baggage. I'm still working with the suitcase analogy here, but there's a lot of baggage with it. And it's a word that causes division. 
Which is really unfortunate because it's a very important and necessary word, especially for followers of Jesus. And there's this kind of debate that seems to be swirling in our culture that, that justice is this kind of word that basically places you in one camp. Like, well, when you talk about justice, are you talking about this or that? And we use it as a way to kind of like sort people. Which is so unfortunate because I think, in my opinion, it is, it is a tactic of our enemy to take something good like justice and, and tweak it and distort it to such a degree that it now divides people. This is what our enemy has done from the beginning. He's a one-trick pony. He takes God's good truth and distorts it just enough to where it divides us from each other and from God. And so what I want us to do is to see justice as an important Issue and truth, especially for followers of Jesus. But when you listen to how our culture talks about justice, you would think that this is a word that we should avoid like the plague. Because there's these extreme, I mean, and the extremes seem to be getting further and further apart. Like, and, and these, these are gross general, generalizations. But kind of on the more maybe extreme progressive side, you might see people talk about justice as state-mandated equality of outcome. Like mandating that everybody ends up having the exact same as everybody else and that's regulated by the state. This is basically trying to force the golden rule upon people through the state, which is not what Jesus intended. But on maybe the conservative side of things, we see justice as as state-conducted punishment of crimes to maintain a safe society. Now, that's also, I mean, a good thing. But Jesus also expected more than justice simply being the punishment of wrongdoers. The very interesting thing is that the Bible speaks about justice factoring in both of these realities. Proactive care for all peoples as well as the punishing of wrongdoers. The very interesting thing is about this conversation of justice that happens in our culture, what is often missing is God and how God understands and defines justice. Tim Keller, uh, the late Tim Keller, who uh, wrote a phenomenal series of essays, one of them was on the Bible and justice in the Bible, basically kind of sums up our cultural divide in this way. He says, both socialism on the more progressive side and libertarianism on the more conservative side keep the obligation to share with the needy on the horizontal level. On the the left, money is the state's and the distribution to the needy will be involuntary. On the right, the more conservative side, money is yours alone and any giving is voluntary and optional. The biblical teaching makes the primary dimension the vertical, the relationship to God. Your money is your own and no one must confiscate it from you. Yet you have a moral obligation to both God and your neighbor to use your money unselfishly and with great generosity to love others with it. Notice how Dr. Keller is basically saying, look, if we settle for understanding justice from the cultural perspective, we will fall into this either or mentality where we are basically pitting ourselves up against one another. But what we see is that the Bible does not allow us for that kind of black and white way of thinking. It is much more nuanced than that. So let me give three very quick disclaimers uh, as we jump into this topic of justice. The first is this. Lay aside preconceived notions of justice. 
Some of us come in with some of these categories of justice from the more progressive side or from the more conservative side. And what I'm asking us to do just for a moment is just to lay aside some of those preconceived notions. The second is this. Let's let the Bible set our terms and terminology. I'm not saying let the Bible alone be our only source of truth. I mean, there, I mean, all truth is God's truth. But let's let the Bible set the terms for us, especially around very important and necessary suitcase words. And thirdly, lean in with both critical and compassionate curiosity. That's a very important phrase. What I am not asking you to do is to check your mind at the door. It's like, hey, let's just love people. Nor am I saying that we are only to be kind of thinking very deeply intellectually. We need to be curious people who are critical and compassionate. What would our world and community look like if we were people who are critically and compassionately curious? So we're going to look at Micah chapter 6, and I want to set this the brief context. Micah was a prophet writing to the southern kingdom of Judah. So there's a time in which Israel was split into two kingdoms. I won't go into that detail. But Micah is writing to Judah during a time when Judah is experiencing great, uh, an increase in wealth and affluence. And what's interesting is that sometimes when there is an influx or a growth, an increase in wealth in a community, sometimes that serves to bring up all peoples. But in this context, that was not the case. The wealthy were becoming wealthy precisely because of the exploitation of the poor. And because of their idolatry and refusing to worship God, they chose to worship created things. And so Micah is essentially building a case against Judah because they have failed to love God and they have failed to love their neighbors. And Micah lists off these various sins that they have basically been guilty of. He talks about their idolatry, worshiping other things than God. He references the seizure of property from the poor and vulnerable. He mentions the failure of both civil and religious leadership. And then he also mentions corrupt business practices taking place amongst the people of Judah. But even in this condemning message, the the mercy of God is shown through Micah the prophet by God tenderly and patiently reminding Judah yet again what is expected of them. And we read these words in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Micah's employing a little bit of sarcasm here. This is what I, I like. Sometimes we don't see the humor in the Bible. I always look for the humor in the Bible. But, but Micah goes on to say this. Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? These hypothetical offerings that Micah is mentioning, they get more and more ridiculous. He, he begins first by talking about offering a burnt offering or a year-old calf, but then, and then thousands of rams. Like, have you ever seen thousands of rams? Like, where would you keep those? And then he mentions, or 10,000 streams of oil. Like, it's getting more and more ridiculous on purpose. It would be like me saying, like, hey, guys, where do you want to go for lunch after church? McDonald's, Mom's Kitchen, Madagascar? Who knows? Like, it keeps getting more and more crazy as you go on for a point. Micah is trying to show that in this absurd increase of offerings, that God is actually not pleased with these things. This is not what God wants. And it culminates with the most ridiculous idea that human, a human could atone for the sins of the world. That's the most ridiculous claim. All of this means nothing to God if we aren't seeking to align our heart with his. And that is exactly where Micah goes next in verse 8. He declares, mankind, he has told each of you 
what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness or mercy, as some translations say, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah is not giving new information. It's not like the people of Judah are like, oh, this is gold. This is very good. Like they know what is required of them. They know that they are to act justly. They know that they are to love faithfulness or mercy and walk humbly with God. This is not repeats. This is why it is a tender mercy of the Lord to let them know, like, look, you have, you have abandoned your first love. You have exploited the poor. You have taken advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. And you have, you have padded your wallets as a result of it. And I'm going to mercifully remind you of the ways in which you are to walk. Now, we might hear this and say, well, listen to this, like, legalistic demand of God. Here's what I require of you. And to be, to respond like that, and I, and I want to be sympathetic. If that's, like, in your mindset, I, I get that. But, but to say that God is being demanding here, it's kind of like saying when a family member, some of you have probably experienced this, a family member who has tried to very kindly and compassionately ask you to make wiser health choices, has that happened? I mean, maybe over the holiday weekend, that probably happened a lot. It's like, hey, like you've had like three gallons of eggnog and it's 930 in the morning. Like, like, but, but maybe you've had somebody ask you that. Now, you might in your defensiveness say like that this family member really doesn't care about you. But you know that their, their desire for you to put some restraints upon your life are for your good. In the same way for God to declare, this is what I require of you. He's not just giving a list of rules. It ends by saying, this is done so that you might walk with me, so that you might be with me. The work of justice is not about simply doing what God tells us to do. It is a means by growing in relationship to him. It is why Jesus uses this word, or why, why, why Micah uses this word of telling him, what is the good life? I have told you what is good. I have told you, and that, that word good is the Hebrew word tov. And the Hebrew word tov, it's more than just like something that is of high quality. What it really means is that it's the essence of goodness. It is the standard of goodness. In other words, when Micah talks about living a life of justice, he's saying this is the good life. The life that we long to live, the good life we are after, it's found in acting justly. But the question still remains, what is justice? Now, what I want us to notice, and we'll get to that, what I want us to notice is that justice is not tangential. It it, it is not an extracurricular activity. It's not like, hey, you know, obey me and follow me, love me. And if you have time, there's a little bit of time at the end of the day, act justly. Micah is declaring, no, this, this is what it means to know God and to worship God and to follow God. And so if we are to know what justice is, like I said, it's a suitcase word. Let's let the Bible determine and set our terms. We need to know what this word means. And it's the Hebrew word mishpat. Say it with me. Mishpat. There you go. Hebrew scholars. This word is a very important word. And it is often translated as the word just or justice in our Bibles. And when we hear this word, and I don't, I don't want to presume, but, but when we typically hear this word as Westerners, we hear the word justice and we think of retributive justice, which is a fancy word for, for saying like punishment justice, like justice that is about punishing wrongdoers. And that's absolutely part of justice. We should thank God that he has woven into creation the need for justice of the punishing of wrongdoers. But that is only roughly 10 percent 
of the references of mishpat in the Hebrew Bible. The vast majority of the references of mishpat are about what is called restorative justice. So you have retributive justice, punishing wrongdoers, and then you have restorative justice. And restorative justice is about, is about seeking the flourishing of the, the person being wronged. It is building them back up. It is about trying to go after proactively the vulnerable and lifting them up. And the vast majority of the time that this word is used, it is about restorative justice. Jenny Yang, in her, in her book, Welcoming the Stranger, she co-wrote that with a guy named Matthew Sorens, uh, the brilliant thinkers, uh, Christian uh, thought leaders in our, in our day. But she says this. To many North American ears, to do justice, this is in the context of talking about Micah 6, to do justice implies law enforcement, whereas to act justly implies doing what is right and fair. The latter understanding is closer to the justice that God calls us to. The quest for us to, the quest for us, if we are to seek God's justice then, is not only what the law is and is it being followed, but is the law itself just? In other words, biblical justice is about proactively standing on the side of the oppressed. It is about proactively responding to the needs of people who are otherwise being, who are otherwise vulnerable, marginalized, and exploited. Again, kids, remember we talked about this. This is more than just saying, don't do bad things to people. Justice demands that we proactively do good upon others and particularly to the vulnerable. This is repeated throughout the Bible. But in in Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, we read these words. The one who denies mishpat, the one who denies restorative justice to a resident alien or an immigrant in your midst or to a fatherless child, or to a widow, is cursed. And all the people will say amen. What what Moses is saying here through Deuteronomy is like, look, what justice is, we, we are to not just avoid doing harm, but if we do not proactively do justice for the good of the vulnerable, Moses is saying, let us be cursed. Again, it is not just about refraining from doing unjust things, but rather doing what is just for the flourishing of the vulnerable. There's this phrase, you've maybe heard me refer to this, but there's a theologian by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff, uh, which is just a great name. It's fun to say. But, uh, but he has this term that he refers to as the quartet of the vulnerable. And throughout the Old Testament, there are these four categories of people, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And these four categories of people are referred to time and time again and are particularly told to Israel to give particular attention to. Not because they're special per se. There's nothing more valuable about them and their inherent worth as image bearers. But it's because they are categories of people who are disproportionately victims of injustice. They are easily taken advantage of. And if we don't give careful attention to them, we may find them taken advantage of in ways that we, if we aren't in that category, we won't find ourselves falling prey to. So if I were to give, I I know this feels kind of like dorky and nerdy, but I think it's helpful to at least have some kind of definition. And so, so I've kind of pulled this together from a few different sources and scholars. And so here's my best attempt at giving us a working definition of biblical justice. And this is what it would be. Biblical justice is giving people their due by punishing wrongdoing. That's absolutely part of it. And restoring wrongs done according to God's design for human flourishing. 
Now, that's not like, it's pretty clear, right? So let's just do that and we're good. Go in peace. Like, obviously, there's a lot more to kind of unpack with this. But when we see this definition, it's easy to see from an individual standpoint. Like, we have a category of like, yeah, if someone's house is broken into, that burglar should be like reprehended and, you know, punished. And we should do what we can to care for the person who was robbed. It's easy to see on an individual level. It is much harder to see on a larger corporate level, communal level, or, or some I refer to as an institutional level. That's where our imagination tends to break down. In, in the, their great book, Divided by Faith, uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, they're both Christian sociologists. Uh, but Divided by Faith is a book that talks about particularly very detailed statistical studies that have gone into this about the particular differences between black Christian communities in, in general and white Christian communities. And what they found in their research is this. And this is I mean, you can I, I encourage you to read the book. It's, it's small, but very dense. Uh, but this is what they pointed out is that the main distinguishing difference between white Protestants, particularly white evangelical Protestants and black Protestants is in regards to their understanding of an institutional imagination. In other words, white Protestants tend to view social problems through individualistic lenses, and black Protestants tend to view social problems through a more corporate lens. And so as a result, if we look at problems through individualistic lenses, the solutions we offer tend to be more individualistic. And this isn't wrong. I want to be very clear. This isn't wrong, but it is often incomplete. And so to say, like, so to, to take, for example, and this is what Christian Smith and Dr. Emerson refer to, to take the example, the social problem of the legacy of slavery in our country that continues to have ramifications of racism in our day. It's easy for us to look at these problems and say we just need to solve it by treating one another with respect and kindness. That's true. Do no less than that. But there needs to be more of an imagination. Mishpat in the Bible has a much wider scope than just what you do with individual people as you encounter them in your daily life. This fails to consider and factor in the social, complex, communal nature of how problems are produced and how they thus must be solved. Andy Crouch, uh, in his great book, Playing God, um, he, he actually refers to this book. Um, so it's a book about a book, like nerd alert. But this is a book about a book. Uh, but Andy Crouch is talking about this very concept, the difference between kind of white communities and black communities. He says this, to think of race in particular, so this is one area of justice, to think of race this way, uh, uh, to think about it in terms of like individualistic, only personal um, attempts are what will solve these issues. To think of race this way is to miss the fact that race and racism are institutional realities built on complex set of artifacts, arenas, rules, and roles. A few friendships that happen outside of those arenas and temporarily suspend a few of those rules and roles do little to change the multi-generational patterns of distorted image, of distorted image bearing and God playing based on skin color. So what Andy Crouch is, he's not saying, so therefore stop being nice to people who are of a different race than you. But he's just saying, if that is our only tool in our toolbox to solve the complexity of something like racial injustice, it's not going to really move the needle, so to speak. There has to be a wider scope, and that is precisely what the biblical understanding of Mishpat provides for us. 
Now, now there, there are many other examples we could kind of give because, again, like I said, it's easy to see justice and injustice on an individual level. Somebody did something wrong to this person. They should be punished. They should be cared for. Nobody worth their salt would object to that. But it's when things get a little bit more complex. So let me give, us, let me give you an example, a contemporary example in our community. Okay, uh, some, some of the people on our outreach team have been aware of this. We've been connected with an organization called the Good Faith Network, kind of learning more about how we can be involved in matters of injustice in our community. And one of the things that this group has kind of helped us learn about is the lack of resources available for people who experience mental health crises. This is very interesting. So uh, this is all, like, don't think that I'm way smart. I'm basically pulling this from a website that we found connected to the Good Faith Network. But of the seven largest counties in Kansas, six of them have what are called uh, mental health stabilization centers. These are centers that provide the ability to provide immediate needed care for someone dealing with a mental health crisis that usually, if it's not there, is treated by the ER or 911. And if any of you work in law enforcement or the medical profession in the ER, you know that these institutions are not set up to really care for mental health crises. Do you know which county of the largest counties in Kansas doesn't have a mental health crisis center? Johnson County, the largest, most affluent county in Kansas. And and here, I'm not throwing shade on our county. I'm from Johnson County. I love Johnson County. But what's so interesting is that the, the research is clear that when a community has a mental health crisis stabilization center, crime goes down, the number of ER visits goes down, people in jails go down. Like It is significant. And national experts for years, since 2017, have urged Johnson County in particular to build a mental health crisis center. And it hasn't happened yet. And we can kind of surmise and hypothesize as to why that isn't happening. But one reason, at least, maybe larger than, than smaller, is that there is a stigma that is attached to mental health, and particularly to mental health crisis centers, that I don't want to allow that. Yes, I want somebody to have access to that, but I don't want it to be in my neighborhood. You've maybe heard the phrase nimbyism, not in my backyard. That's kind of the mindset. So, so here, here's what I say. I'm not trying to create guilt or be like, boy, I feel bad for living in Johnson County. I'm not saying that. But here's my question. Who is, to bl- who is the person to blame for this, this injustice? There's not one person. It would be so easy to just identify one person and go after them. The reason I share this example is to help us lean into the tension that justice and injustice is much messier than we realize. And that if we are to be a people who pursue justice, we must not settle for simple solutions. If your idea about pursuing justice begins with the word just, like just do this. You're not actually pursuing justice. You don't have a wide enough imagination for what it means to live out mishpat. And what's really interesting, again, about the mental health crisis issue is that those who are in need of mental health crises or or care are almost always, disproportionately so, under-resourced people in our community. And this is how it goes. This is a, a tale as old as time. Uh, to quote Beauty and the Beast. Uh, but but the, the point being is that, is that typically it is the under-resourced who are disproportionately the victims of injustice. In fact, Nicholas Wolterstorff, who I mentioned, he has this great line. He says, the poor are, the poor are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but usually disproportionately actual victims of injustice. Injustice is not equally distributed. 
So again, I share this not to shame us, not to feel bad about the fact that the Johnson County doesn't have the center. And this is just one example. This is not a soapbox. I'm not saying so. Therefore, this is something we've got to go after. But I'm just saying we need to have a wider imagination for what it means to be a just people. And, and I, I want to I, I need to skip a lot here. So but let me let me I want to close with this. Um, there's a reason why. In Psalm 89, the foundation of God's throne is described in this way. Righteousness, which is the word tzedakah, which means to do what is right, to be a right person. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Happy are the people who know the joyful shout. Lord, they walk in the light from your face. At the end of the day, a biblically shaped understanding of living out justice, I would say, is summed up in this. If there's one idea, so I'm saving our one idea for the end. Our one idea, I hope it's this. The gospel moves us to make our neighbor's problems our problems. You've probably heard me even say that before. But the gospel moves us to make our neighbor's problems our problems. And so again, when we think about the golden rule, kids, that I told you about early on, it is not just us avoiding doing harm, but it is proactively doing good. One of the ways we live out the golden rule and not the silver rule is by caring enough about people to make their problems our problems. And so, so let me offer three very quick just steps to consider. Uh, there, there's not a lot of detail to these, but, but here's what I would say. We need to learn how to be close enough to care, to be humble enough to hear, and to be strong enough to speak. We need to be close enough to care. Part of what it means to be a person of justice is that you actually have proximity to people who are dealing with these matters. It's, it's not like, like when we talk about being a people of justice, it's not about getting on social media and talking about some problem that exists 800 miles away. I'm, I'm not saying don't do that. But if we were to be a people of justice, it needs to start locally, proximately, be close enough to care, also be humble enough to hear. And this is probably what we, I probably should have put this first and second, be humble enough to hear. Do not assume that just because you care, it means that you know exactly what to do. That the people who are closest to the facts need to actually have a voice in determining what is needed to solve these problems. So may we be humble enough to hear and then lastly be strong enough to speak. Be strong enough to speak. This is where it's not just about responding, but who in various places of influence and power need to have this attention brought to them. Because it may not be us. Be close enough to care, be humble enough to hear, and be strong enough to speak. Now, I could just end and walk off here, and this is kind of a motivating message, but, but here's what I want to root it in. The reason we are a people who pursue biblical justice is it's wrapped up in our summary statement as a church. We're a church moved by the gospel for the good of our community. This message is not just about trying to kind of contrive some altruistic desire to care for people. We do this as we sing in that beautiful song we sang, Hosanna. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And and show me how to love as you have loved me. Why should we give careful attention to the poor, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow? Why should we care enough? Why should we be close enough to care, humble enough to, to hear, and strong enough to speak? Why should we be moved by the gospel to make the problems of others our problems? It's because this is precisely what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. 
That the good news of the gospel is that God, in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and love, looks upon us in our brokenness and doesn't just say, figure out how to get to me. He has come to be with us. And not just drawing near and being close to comfort us, he drew close enough to actually become our problems. That he became our sin. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, He who knew no sin, the sinless one of God, became our sin so that we might become his righteousness by faith. That is the good news of the gospel. And when that becomes the overarching, animating story of our lives, that is what produces the fuel to be a people of justice, loving our neighbors. Not because we have to, not because it is what, is, uh, what good people do, but because out of what God has done for us, we respond. And so hear these words, church, as we close this time. Paul says this in Romans 5. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If we do not have that fuel driving our desire to be a force of good in our community, we will flame out. But when this is the foundation of who we are, it it fans a flame of love and mercy and justice and compassion and allows us to walk humbly with God. May it be so of us. May this be true of Trinity for the good of our community and the glory of Christ's name. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for the fact that you have looked upon us in our brokenness, in our alienation, in in our, our distance from you, in our sin, in our shame, and you have not allowed us to stay there. And that you have done something about it by entering into our brokenness and by becoming our sin so that we might become like you. Lord Jesus, what I I ask and pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here is that you would allow the truth, the beauty, the mystery, the wideness of the gospel to be the fuel that that fans the flame of our desire to be a people of justice for our neighbors in this community and beyond. And Lord, for those of us here who, who don't know what it means to hear someone declare over them that your brokenness, your sin, your shame and mistakes and regrets are not what define you, Lord, would the power of the gospel break through into their lives? And would they experience your justice that was granted to Jesus, that you took our judgment and placed it upon him? Would that truth invade the lives of those who are far from you now? And would you transform us, Lord, by the power of this truth? Move us, Lord, and shape us by the power of your word, for the glory of your name and the good of your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.